athletic training is the training that is necessary for freedom. That athletic training is the training of mind and body and spirit, which allows you to assume the responsibilities of liberty. There's no running away from the pain that comes with running as fast as you can for 100 meters. Your lungs are going to burn. Your muscles are going to be sore. You have to go through it in order to get anything out of it. I'm the one who's in charge of my own story. I'm the one who determines what happens to me. And it's all based upon the amount of suffering I'm willing to endure in order to achieve what I want. It is an embodied understanding of the responsibility that's required for a free society. We're feeling this in our gut. We're feeling as if there's a churn, that this is a difficult time, but on the other side of this will be like almost like a spiritual rebirth. And I wouldn't be surprised if we are heading towards this kind of massive moment of a reawakening. Welcome to the Staying Free Podcast. In this episode, I spoke with Jordan Goldstein. I was first introduced to Jordan by a mutual friend and previous guest on the Staying Free Podcast, Gareth Martin. And Gareth suggested that Jordan would be a great guest on the podcast. Jordan sounded like he had an interesting background, so I invited him on the show. And I'm really glad that I did because we ended up having a super interesting and very long conversation spanning a whole host of different areas, but mainly theming around the idea of sport, ancient sport, and the connection between athletic activity and the human spirit, and more largely the spirit of an entire cultural society. So Jordan teaches ancient sport wisdom in order to help modern men find their purpose. He coaches men, elite athletes and teams, and he himself is a trail runner. It's been a while since I've got someone on the show who I don't know too much about, but I'm really glad that Gareth suggested I get Jordan on because the conversation is definitely different to the kind of conversations I normally have on the podcast, but we went into some very philosophical areas and having conversations like this where we go into totally uncharted territories really makes for some fresh content. So I hope you guys enjoy it as much as I did. If you enjoy the episode, please give it a like and a share on social media. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please give it a five-star rating on whichever podcast app you're using. If you're new here, then welcome. Give the podcast a subscribe for future episodes and also check out some of the previous episodes, which I'm sure you'll enjoy as well. If you'd like to donate to the podcast, this can be done with Bitcoin on chain and with Lightning. Just check the description to do that. And there's also a link to buy me a coffee there as well if you want to give a fiat donation. Tips are hugely appreciated and will go directly towards the cost of running the show. All right, on to the episode. It was uh, Gareth, wasn't it, who initially yeah. kind of suggested yeah. we should do this? Gareth Ross. Yeah, cool, cool. So, um, yeah, thanks, Gareth. <laughs> um, so, yeah, t- tell, tell me a little bit about yourself, Jordan. You uh, said that you live in a rural area of, uh, of, of Canada. So, um, yeah, go from there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, I, I do. I live in a small little village. It's less than 1,000 people. Um, it's a wonderful escape. Um, and it was essentially our <laughs> oasis away from the insanity that has been living in Canada for the past two and a half years. Um, I believe if we lived in a city, um, I don't know if we would have made it <laughs> or I would have made it uh, with my family intact, with my sanity intact. Uh, and I'm not even sure I'd be living in this country anymore um, because of the stark difference between the rural and the urban environment when it came to dealing with that stuff. Um, But it's been a a whirlwind of transformations for me um, basically ever since that stuff started. (laughs) Oh, so were you living in 
in the city before kind of everything kicked off in 2020? No, we had, we were living in Toronto, um, but we had always wanted to get out of the city um, and get to a rural spot um, to raise our family um, in a slower environment with proximity to nature. One of the things my wife and I love to do is go hiking um, and just sort of like envelop ourselves in nature. And when you're in the city, it's difficult to do that. Um, It's funny because we live in a place now where we used to drive to from Toronto in order to come hiking. Uh, we would drive an hour and a half on our weekends to come out and, and hike on the Ni- Niagara Escarpment, um, which is a beautiful natural feature that sort of runs hundreds of kilometers uh, through Ontario. It's a beautiful big cliff. And um, now we live about 10 minutes away from it. <laughs> so so it's uh, we've been drawn out here for a, for a, for a long time and um, really validated once we had our daughter in 2018. Um, but really stark difference, especially um, juxtaposed to my friends who we left in the cities uh, and their experiences, especially with the the vicious lockdowns and uh, everything that sort of all the craziness that transpired, the, the group think, the discrimination, uh, the pointing your fingers at your neighbors, all that stuff was heavy in the city. When I would go into Toronto, obviously a city of 3 million people, but even smaller cities, a couple hundred thousand people, everybody looked at everybody else with incredible suspicion. And it was almost like everybody had their eye out for every other person and nobody was comfortable and everybody was sort of like making sure you were doing the right thing uh, or, or else. And there was this like the tension was so thick, it was suffocating. So I can only imagine what that would have been like for people living in that environment and atmosphere for months and months and months and especially if you're living in a small condominium and you can't get out of your house and you don't have access to green space or community um because out in the rural area there were a few things that were different in our day-to-day lives uh clearly but the vibe on our street our neighbors our ability to get out and away into nature to escape was so easy for us that there were parts, there were times of the pandemic and the lockdowns where it was kind of nice. It was my family at home, spending time together, going out, being in nature. Um, so we were able to really make the most out of it because we have we live in this separate space, um, which is slower. It's a more high trust society out here in the in the country. Um, we live in a place where people will leave like their garden vegetables or the eggs that come from the little chicken coop that they've got in their backyard. They'll leave it out on their front on their front. And it's like, Hey, $5, leave, leave the money. If you, if you want sort of, it's, it's, it's that type of a very high trust society. Um, and it wasn't really as frayed and there wasn't this idea of like pointing the finger at everybody. Um, so even as the walls were seemingly like crashing down all around us, um, just the ability to live in this rural, small, slow setting was tremendous, tremendously helpful uh, in allowing people like me, who very much disagreed with everything that was going on in the country, uh, to to have some level of sanity and to be able to still find the good in people, um, as opposed to making everybody into my enemy, uh, which is kind of like what everybody else did. Yeah, I mean, there's something... 
there's something about cities that's, I think, been exposed through this whole thing. You know, I mean, there's a dark underbelly there. You know, they're great when times are good. Um, you know, I li- I've lived in cities for, for a long time. I was actually in London um, during the lockdowns and everything like that. And it was honestly when the charm of that city kind of just left me. I was already, I was already kind of tiring a little bit of city life. Um, but certainly during that time, I was just like, okay, you know, when everything's not open and people aren't going out and having fun and meeting up and everything, it honestly felt like, um, you know, Soviet Russia or something, especially, you know, it was dark and, you know, I like to go out to the, um, to the parks and stuff and do calisthenics at the park, you know, like every day I would go to the park and I'd do calisthenic workout. Right. And, um, I would go to the parks and they'd literally put, um, you know, metal barriers, around the the equipment and stuff they put padlocks on it even the the kids playground they'd they padlocked the door right so like based parents were lifting their kids over the over the things right like to to go and play which was great to see um you know if i had kids myself there's no way i would i would be uh, respecting that i'd be jumping the hell over that thing but you know a lot of people complied a lot of people were like okay my kid can't play in the playground now and Man, there's something about that for me that's just you've you're, there's something has to be wrong with your spirit to to say I'm I'm going to accept when the government says my kid can't go play in the playground, you know, my kid can't go and play in the park, whatever it is. There's something wrong. There's something there's something wrong with society and way way too many people accepted it. Yeah, I mean the way that children were hurt uh to spare essentially uh, some of the the most vulnerable people in our society was to me an indication that that there was a real spiritual malaise and even like in a spiritual inversion going on into our in in our society because a healthy society is one that protects and celebrates children and and doesn't use them as shields for adults which is essentially what we did uh, over over the the last two years and and I love your comment about like parents without sense just doing what the government told them. It's one of the things about our local community is the parents and the volunteers who run athletics. They, 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 they did the, they were, they went through the hoops, but whenever things were shut down for them, they said, well, we're, we're going to make it work. So for, for example, we enrolled my daughter last year into her first year of hockey. She's very young. She's three. So it's more like a learn to skate program. Um, and it's run by local volunteers. It's a completely local thing that's within our little township. Um, but they had to keep jumping through these hoops. You know, I was going to volunteer. I was going to be on the ice. And I remember going to uh, the first meetup, which we did outside. Um, and they were telling us the rules of what was going to be happening. And it was it, everybody just kind of laughed at them because they didn't make any sense. And this was at the very beginning of the time of vaccine mandates in Canada. Um, and so the rules for our team were, were if you wanted to come into the arena to watch, you had to be vaccinated. So you had to show your, your vax card or, or whatever. But if you wanted to volunteer on the ice, you didn't have to be vaccinated. <laughs> so I not vaccinated. Um, and, and we could talk more about, more about that fun, fun stuff that happened with my career and just dealing with all that crap in Canada. But, um, when, when I remember when the volunteer said that all the parents kind of looked around at each other and just were like laughing. They're like, are you serious? Like, that's the thing that they want us to do. And they were like, yeah, we know it's stupid, but like, this is, if we want the kids to be able to get on the ice, 
And that's the most important thing is getting the kids on the ice. Well, this is what, this is what we've got to do. Um, and then the very next day, which was the day that of the first practice. So I was getting ready to go and volunteer. We get the email. Oh no. Now unvaccinated people aren't even allowed in the building at all. So I was taken right off the ice. And this was, this was a big issue for me, obviously. Um, and my wife and I, we had talked about this, like, well, what happens if they do this? Uh, do we pull her out? Um, my wife was, she, she did get vaccinated. So she would have been able to take, she, she, she ended up taking her. Um, and we made the decision. We'll keep her in it because it's important for her to do normal kid things like go skating with her friends and to see the smiles and like see other parents. Right. Um, and to have that kind of community spirit. So I sacrificed, I was very upset um, that I wasn't allowed into the arena. I know that it wasn't necessarily the people in my community who did it, but if they said, no, we want unvaccinated parents to be able to come in, like they would have shut down the entire year for all the kids. And then none of the kids, none of the kids would have been able to, to play hockey. So then you have to do this trade-off kind of thing, right? Where it's like, well, I'm the adult. If anybody's going to suffer in this situation, uh, it's going to be me. I'm not going to pull my three-year-old daughter out. Who's innocent in all of this. She doesn't know about the vaccine mandate. She doesn't know about the politics around yeah. it, right? But there's got to be someone there who, there's got to be someone there ultimately who made that decision, you know? So this is the thing, like these, even if these mandates are coming from top down, there's always someone in the chain there who has that opportunity to yeah. say, I'm not going to do it, you know? where the, yeah, the, And no. there seems to be so few of those people, you know? Like, I, I'm sure that you are right. If we were in that position and someone said, you've got you've to stop people coming in who are vaccinated, we would just be like, I'm just not going to do it. Like you're going to, you know, you're going to have to come and do it yourself. If you want to impose this mandate, you're going to have to bring people here and do it themselves because I'm not going to do it. There's just so few people in society who are actually willing to take a stand, you know, because this is just so like, yeah. it's so upsetting. You know, you want, you just want your, your kid yeah. to in, it, like enjoy herself and you know, you want to be, be there to share in that. I mean, and they're just taking away these basic, basic human experiences away from people, you know? Yeah. I agree with that. I'm, I'm not suggesting like that. I wasn't angry. I was furious. I was, I, I was furious at all the vaccine at all the vaccine mandates. Yeah, I mean, they're immoral no uh, and they're disgusting. But then it's like, okay, what well, what they're here, and how do we actually live, and how do we act, and what's the appropriate thing? Am I going to turn every single thing into a political hissy fit? Some fights are worth fighting, and other fights are not. Right? Like the fight against the local, the fight against the local volunteers sure. who are doing their absolute best, and who are then themselves getting rammed by the bureaucrats. It's not my, I didn't believe it was my job to go and yell at them. Right. And I, I was validated by this because of course they, they did the vaccine mandate so they wouldn't have to shut down society losers. They, they shut that, they shut us down again in January. So they closed all the arenas in the province. So they shut down the hockey. But what did my, what did the volunteers do? Okay. We got outdoor rinks. We got backyard rinks. Let's go and bring the kids to the backyard rinks and we'll run the practices there. And guess what? because of stupid social distancing or whatever, we are only allowed to have so many people, but whoever wants to come can come. So they weren't, it wasn't their vaccine mandate. They just had to take the gut punch so that they could put it on for the kids, which ultimately I think was the right call. It's like the kids had been, had so much stolen for them. The adults could figure out a little discomfort in order to provide joy and happiness and entertainment and, and, 
normal childhood things for their kids. You know, like I'm willing, I'm willing to make sacrifices for my child. Those are the sacrifices that I chose to make. My battle wasn't with the parent volunteers who are in my community, who hopefully I'm going to be spending a lot of time with in the years forward as we build community, right? Like that's not the fight to pick. So I didn't. And this is just sort of like indicative of the rural attitude of like coming together despite all the shit that gets thrown at you. You know, we persevered and we, 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 we made as best of it as we could. But there are places to stand up and fight. And I certainly did that. You know, the vaccine thing in Canada was extremely frustrating, as I mentioned. Um, and there were elements all throughout society that that enraged me. But, you know, where's the energy going to go? What's the what's the fight that you're going to choose? Like the fight is not with the local volunteers who are getting screwed by the bureaucrats as well. The fight is with the people who are implementing the policies that are directly impacting you. So I certainly stood up and fought and I fought in a very public way. Uh, and that was against the university that I worked at fighting their vaccine mandate. Um, so we could talk about that a little bit um, as a as a as a as a more of a sort of like triumphant taking these people on directly uh, and not submitting to their shit, um, which that was the right play there. Um, because university administrators and bureaucrats, those are the those are absolutely the people to fight. <laughs> those are the pe- those are the people to fight. So you were what university was it you were working at? I was working at uh, Wilfrid Laurier University. It's in Waterloo, Ontario, Canada. Um, for people who are uh, have been following sort of like the free speech issues and battles on university campuses. Wilfrid Laurier University might sound familiar. We were the epicenter of a massive international free speech scandal in 2017 and 2018 involving one Dr. Jordan Peterson. Uh, and a, oh, okay, right. Yeah, I know about that. A grad student named Lindsay Shepard. Um, so if anybody out there remembers that, um, that's the university I worked at. And that was my first experience of standing up against the university administration and defending uh, ideas of of freedom. Um, I remember the news story. Oh my gosh, I remember it like it was yesterday. Um, It was Remembrance Day or Armistice Day, uh, November 11th. And my friend and I, we were going to see Dr. Jordan B. Peterson speak at an event. And it was that morning that Christy Blatchford published the Lindsay Shepard story, which was about the university that I worked at and the controversy involving Dr. Jordan Peterson. So it's kind of funny how it all worked. Um, But we ended up creating a free speech club, her two tenured professors uh, and myself. And I was not a tenured professor. um, And there were 560 other profs at the university and none of them supported the student. None of them decided to get behind free speech. Um, and so there was basically just like three of us fighting these battles, um, against the administration, uh, having our talks shut down by fire alarms and protesters and having to get police and all these ridiculous things. Um, so I had already been, I guess, identified as somebody within the university who wasn't going to play by their rules uh, and who was going to be vocal against the administration when I thought that they were doing things that were wrong. And then we got word of the vaccine mandates in September of 2021. And I knew that I was not going to comply. I knew that I would never take this vaccine um, for my own personal reasons. I don't really care to get into it. 
Uh, I don't care to get into the reasons why people take the vaccine or don't take the vaccine. It's a personal decision. It should stay with them. Um, and that's been my position the entire time. And, and I just don't yeah, care. Sure. Uh, and I don't really understand why people care so much about what goes into my body. Um, but I knew that this was the place to stand. I knew that this was the place to fight. Um, and I was, I was willing to lose my job in order to stand up for what I believed in. Um, so that was the place to fight. Um, and I ended up keeping my job and I ended up not getting vaccinated, <laughs> which was, which was a nice little victory. Um, but the things that I had to do to, to do that were outrageous. Uh, and I believe that the people who submitted me to this committed crimes against me, uh, when, when they tried to coerce me into taking an experimental medical, medical procedure that I just don't want to take. Um, just for my, for my audience, because most of my audience is, is English, they might not yes. know, and I don't know, like the intricacies of like, um, you, you know, this, the kind of specifics of, of the VAX mandates in, um, in Canada. Yep. So was it, was this a public sector thing? Was it a university thing? Like what was the rule essentially that you were falling under that was causing you to have your job up? Like, was it just that university or like how, how far reaching was it? Uh, it was all universities. All universities had vaccine mandates. Uh, universities in Ontario are sort of like public-private monsters. They're all connected to the government, but they're all kind of independent as well. It's very strange. Um, so all the universities had vaccine mandates. All the government sectors had vaccine mandates uh, for employment. Um, there weren't too many private employer mandates, um, but they did exist. And in terms of like the social ramifications, you were basically excluded from everything in terms of civic society. The only places you could go were places that you could buy things. So you could go to the grocery store and you could go into stores. Otherwise, mm -hmm. you could. Oh, and you could go to you could go into like medical establishments. But it's it was so silly. Like I remember um, going to get the flu shot because um, we had just had our second child and for newborns carrying the flu is not, you don't want them to get the flu. So those are the only times I ever take a flu shot is when we've got a newborn in the house. Um, but it was done in a community center that also houses like a library and local arenas. So it's kind of like you walk into this big complex and if you want to go into the arena, you get shuffled into the line with the vaccine passport. But if you're going to the, the, the flu shot clinic, you, you walk in and it doesn't matter. So the rules were arbitrary. The rules were ridiculous. I think everybody knows that they weren't based on any science. They were never based on any, They were never based on science. Um, but they were very far reaching and they were quite destructive in Canada because they they created an immense schism in between the population. Right. The people who weren't vaccinated became othered. We became second class citizens and we became uh, subject to an incredible amount of social pressure to conform. I lost friendships. Mm -hmm. uh, family members refused to see me. Um, I have some of the some of the most loyal people that I thought would would at least not necessarily like agree with what I was doing, but at least empathize with the position of my life being yeah. destroyed and taken away from me. I got none of that. In fact, when I went to all the people who I would have considered my best friends, they kicked me when I was down and threw dirt on top of me. You deserve this. You know the choices. You know the consequences of your thing. It's fine if they fire you. It's okay that people don't want to be with you. You're just being selfish, mm. uh, and 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 you're you're kind of being crazy about this. 
um, all the typical stereotypes, right? Um, and I would never be allowed to defend myself. They'd say, you can, you can tell us why medically you don't want to take it, but don't get politics involved. Don't get to your beliefs. And to me, this was doubly offensive because I have a PhD in history and my, my PhD is related to how individualist ideologies become overtaken by collectivist ideologies. <laughs> so it's almost okay, as if you were, you were pretty equipped for this. <laughs> it's almost as if I'm like, you realize you're listening to these expert epidemiologists and you're telling me I need to listen to them. And then I, and then I can turn around and say, yeah, that's fine. But I can tell you that scientists don't know absolute truth. And I can, I can point you to, to examples in history where the public has marshaled science, scientific expertise into horrible things. Um, and then they end up having to apologize afterwards. Uh, and if you just let me talk to you about it, then at least maybe you can, understand and empathize with my position on this but nobody would ever even let me talk about any of those things because i was a kook or i was i was i was a nut because i just didn't want to fall in line with everything that was being that i was being told to do it was it was shocking yeah it was a very revealing time wasn't it it was just you know you you kind of read about this stuff in history and then it was like taking it was taking place in front of our very eyes and you like you said you know there's it, when when I was kind of going through this this as well, I was just like, oh well, of course everyone's going to recognize this is bullshit. Of course, this propaganda you know campaign isn't going to work. And then you realize that it does, and it's kind of scary to see you look around and you're just like, wow, I I'm not living in the world that I thought I was living in. You know? Yeah, hundred percent. The veil was lifted, um, yeah. and people people's characters people's characters were revealed and. I don't think it's as simple. And, and some people like to simplify it. It's like, Oh, the vax, the people that got vaccinated failed and the people who didn't get vaccinated succeeded. I, I don't think it's that, I don't, I don't think it's that clean. I know lots of vaccinated people who got it for what I would consider to be legitimate reasons at the time, like for their personal medical health, which is the right reason to take a medical product. Right. But we know yeah. that there's a lot of people who took it for not that, not those reasons. They didn't take it because yeah. they thought they medically needed it. They took it for, I want to travel or they're telling me this is how I get back to normal after they've abused me with lockdowns for a year and a half sort of thing. Like, mm -hmm. and all those people, those are the people that, those are the people that failed in my estimation. It's not the people who believed that they medically needed it. I mean, I think you can, I think you can parse it out. I, I don't think it's as clean as I don't think it's as clean as that, even if it is clear in our minds that the choice was was obvious. Right. Um, yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah. Like it's like the people who failed, the people who failed are not the people who thought they medically needed. The people who failed are the people who thought this wasn't a hill worth dying on, even if they, you know, even if they were like, oh, I don't know if I need it. I don't know if I don't need it, but I'm going to just get it because I want to go on holiday or whatever it was. Though any, you know, even the people who got it for their jobs didn't necessarily fail because that might have been a decision of various factors of saying, look, I need to feed my family, this, that, and the other. I can understand it. But it's the people who did it for a, a kind of superfluous reason, you know, like for some some reason it was just totally unnecessary, like, oh, I want to go to I want to go to this certain country that requires it and I just fancy going there for a week's holiday or whatever. And those people who just think I'm not gonna make a stand for something really, really fleeting like that. Those are the people I think failed, but not just for themselves. They failed for wider society in general because they set a precedent for everyone else then. 
Yeah, I, I think you're spot. I think you're spot on on that. Like they're the weak, they're the weak links in the domino chain, right? That should have been able to yes. stand up, yeah. but they That's fell, it. they fell down and they fell down without a fight, you know, like, and those, they remind me of all the people in the Academy who like, don't like the woke takeover and who don't agree with like censorship. Right. But they never say anything in public and you just get these messages like, oh, my gosh, I really uh, you're really brave for what you're doing. And I wish you could, but I can't. And it's just like, no, you can and you should. And you're betraying me by not doing it. You're worse. Mm -hmm. You're you're yes. you're almost worse than the people who believe that what they're doing is right, because at least they're at least they're acting on their beliefs, man. Like I respect people. Who, who, who follow up their beliefs with action in the world. And I, I do not respect cowards who don't. Even if I agree with you ideologically on principle and politics, if you're not willing to stand up in public when it absolutely matters the most, you are not an ally of mine. You're actually my enemy uh, because what you're doing is you're undercutting me, essentially, when I'm standing up and I'm trying to fight because you agree with me. And if we all just stood together Think about how much of this stuff we could have stopped if people just had a little bit more of a backbone, if they had a little bit more resolve in their principles, as opposed to living towards expediency and comfort, sort of like, well, I don't want to get the vax, but I really do want to go on that beach vacation next year. So I'm going to get the vax. Your yeah, beach yeah. vacation isn't the beach vacation isn't worth your soul. I'm sorry. And those were the stakes we were playing that. Uh, at least totally, I believe those totally are the stakes. <laughs> those are the those were the yeah, stakes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I think most people didn't recognize that link there that it is their soul. I think a lot of people they were just like they didn't see that giving up on something so fundamental as that is connected to their soul and you know the essence of who you are. And I think some people seem to have recognized that that was actually at the center of all of this was this is a battle for your integrity, your very integrity. Um, and other people didn't seem to recognize that that battle was even playing out. That was even, you know, the stakes that were in front of them. So, um, you know, I know that you, um, I, I want to find out a little bit more about your character then, because, you know, how did you, how did you become a person who recognized that? I, I always like to dig into this question of like, how do people, why do some people see it and other people's don't? So, you know, where does that come from for you? Is this a recent thing? Have you kind of cultivated it deliberately or is this just your natural disposition is to kind of um, really fight for your for your inte integrity and really care about these issues and to think deeply about them? Like, how does that story go for you? Great question. Um, there's, there's a bunch of things that pop into my mind. Dispositionally, yes. I'm, we all know those people who are just sort of like naturally the contrarians. Um, that's sort of just my, my, my disposition. Yeah. You tell me to run one direction and I'm going to turn around and I'm going to start running, walking the other direction, uh, just out of, just out of my, my, dis, my disposition, <laughs> um, not in necessarily a rebellious way or to break rules arbitrarily. I just, I just am skeptical of the, um, the authority of people to tell me what to do. Um, when I basically, understand that I'm not really even good at telling myself what to do. Um, so how can, how can other people know better than me um, in, in that sense? But this is something I would suggest I, that was cultivated over a long period of time. Um, and there's three things I think that sort of link up for me personally. One is personal family history. Um, the second is kind of like a, an academic realization. And then the third 
which I think is like the linchpin in all of this is uh, the importance of physicality. Um, I think I'll start with the academic one first because uh, I'm a PhD um, and like a lot of people in the academy, I started out as a progressive. I started out left wing. Um, and as I was going through my undergrad and into my master's, I was your, your typical centrist progressive, um, which for me was a big transformation because I entered university in 18, as an 18 year old, as a communist, as a Marxist, <laughs> um, you know, contrarian by disposition. Right. Uh, so I had a long transformation, um, that started to occur at the end of my master's and in between when I went into my PhD and it was related to finding a politician uh, by the name of Ron Paul, who's just like the goat and the legend. Oh yeah. I'm all, I'm always interested in politicians that are unorthodox and who break away from what their party is saying. I had just finished writing a 75 page article on a Republican congressman from the 1850s who was kicked out of the Republican party uh, for advocating against one of their core tenets um, in the lead up to the American civil war. So that's, I'm always interested in those kinds of people historically, you don't fit into anybody else's box. Uh, and so I saw this Republican guy right. who was arguing for the legalization of all drugs. And I didn't, that didn't make any sense to me in 2010. So I was like, well, who is this guy? Uh, and the, yeah. the more I dug into Ron Paul and his ideas, the more I drifted away from progressivism and more towards libertarianism, uh, which ultimately made sense with my internal beliefs of just myself and, and, and kind of how I live my life. And so that was like the first big thing. And what that mm -hmm. did was move you from a victimhood, uh, sort of like a general victimhood mentality to more of a heroic mentality. Like when you're progressive, you're looking for the victims and you're looking at how people are victimized by society and how they're oppressed. And that can seep into your own mindset, right? In terms of like, well, the system stops me from doing this, or I'm limited because of all these external factors from reaching whatever goal it is that I want, right? It seeps into your mindset because you're always looking for the victim and you're always trying to essentially like defend the victim, uh, rightly or wrongly. But when you switch to the more libertarian ideology, like, you don't really care about those external things that hold you back because you realize it's more about what I do. It's more about my perspective. It's more about my willingness to overcome hurdles and adversity. And once I made that link, it, it synced up really nicely with the, one of the other things I talked about, which is family history. So I'm Jewish and I come from a family of Holocaust survivors. My grandfather was sent over to Canada on the kinder transport. Um, which there's a documentary about the kinder transport. It's one, it was like the last ditch effort to send out kids uh, from Germany after Kristallnacht uh, and before the, the, before the first world war started. So between like, like late 1938, early 1939, thousands and thousands of kids were sent by their parents um, knowing that they would never, ever see them again off to a, a new land. So my grandfather was, 17, he got sent over. He was placed in a, a concentration camp in England for a few months until they 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 got him onto a boat that came to to Canada. Wait, wait, wait! Um, a, a concentration camp in England? Yeah, yeah, because they got them out of they got them out of they got them out of Germany, uh, and then they didn't know where they were going to send them. Essentially, like they had to they they had to logistically oh, figure okay. out where are we where are we right. sending these kids. It's like a refugee thing. It's not yes. like a concentration. Yeah. Okay. It's it's not it's not like, like the a concentration lot of people in one place though. Yeah. That's yes. That's what I meant. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah it's yeah, not yeah, the concentration camps that my great grandparents 
were sent to where they were murdered. No, 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 no. Um, wasn't that it wasn't right, that so, one. so he came via via England. This is your grandfather, yes. was it? Oh, and he came via England before before going on to Canada. So then he got to Canada. He didn't speak a word of English, and he was billeted with an anti-Semitic family who used to beat the living piss out of him. <laughs> oh wow! Oh my God! Right. So here's that's my that's my grandfather. And what did he do with that opportunity? He he was trained as a butcher. He ended up apprenticing, and then he opened up his own business in in Ontario. Ran his own business for over fifty years. Uh, you know, had a beautiful family, had two daughters, paid the way for both of his daughters to go through university. They both have master's degrees. Um, and he had no advantages. He had, he had absolutely no advantages in, in doing that. Yeah. And when, when he would tell me about Canada, he said, Canada is the greatest country in the world. It gave me the opportunity to forget where I came from to have a new identity and to work hard for what I wanted to achieve. And for him, the hard work was the thing that was the celebration. It was his glory. It was his triumph is his way of, 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 of victoring over all the horrible things that he had to experience that he knew his family experienced. Right. Um, so you fast forward to some 22 year old, master's student who's now like making mounds out of molehills for all these like bogus problems that don't have anything. And it's just like, how can I, in any good conscience, think of myself as a victim when I know the personal story of my grandfather, who I can go talk to right now. You know what I mean? He died in uh, 2013. So that was a really big thing. That was very powerful for me. So as at the same time that I moved from progressive to libertarian, that it just synced up with this personal history of struggle and triumph and just coming from an absolute low position in order to, to succeed. Um, and then the third part of that transformation was physicality because at that time I was suffering from, uh, really severe kidney stones. Um, they are really brutal. <laughs> I'll tell you yeah, that I've, much. I've heard that it's, I've heard that it's about one of the most painful things you can experience kidney stones. Yeah. I ended up in the emerge cause I thought my appendix was bursting. Like that's, Damn. it was, it was, it was bad. Um, and when I got to emerge, I was like one of those special people that they, 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 they put you right at the front of the line. Cause when you walk in, you look like you're about to die. Uh, that was me. <laughs> I, so I got right to the front of the line. It was horrible. Uh, but then I was like, well, you've got these kidney stones. So what, what caused them and what do you do? What can you do about it? Um, so, you know, the first couple months, it was victim. Woe is me. Like lean into the victim mentality, try and gain sympathy and empathy because now I'm like in pain and all this stuff. And it never made me feel very good. I'll tell you that much. Like it was, it was just bad. Um, but then it's, you know, with these other two ideas, like of, of a more libertarian philosophy and just like thinking about the struggles my grandfather goes through, it's just like, you have to take control of the situation. I'd been going to see specialists and doctors and everything they told me was crap. Let's just say that none of it was working. And I started to do my own research and I was like, you know, like one of the things that they say can contribute to kidney stones is a sedentary lifestyle. And I was living a decently sedentary lifestyle at that point. Um, I wasn't like overweight, uh, or, or, or in bad health, but I wasn't moving a lot. Like I was not moving a right. lot. 
Uh, and, and so I took it on myself to start moving more. And I, I started to swim laps in, a, in the pool um, as, a, as a grad student. And I went, I remember going to my doctors and I said, hey, you know, like I found this thing about sedentary living and I've been getting in the pool and it's been feeling really well. Like, does any of this make sense? And the doctors laughed in my face. They said, they basically said, no, it has nothing to do with it. Uh, so uh, then I, I decided, you know, screw you guys. I'm never coming back. Um, and, and I embarked on, on using physicality, using exertion, using athleticism as a way to gain control over my life. And I, I didn't really find, I, I did not a big fan of like exercises. I, I really don't like the gym. Um, so I was just looking for things to do. And then I found trail running and like, this was the thing that I think just like synced everything for me. Um, and I have very deep, deep, deep beliefs about <laughs> the, the utility of running and, and, and especially running in nature. But um, something was unlocked inside of me the second I got onto a running trail for the very first time, like a, like a hiking trail. And I decided to run it instead of walk on it like I'd been normally doing. Um, and then it was just like, I'm a conqueror. Like I'm somebody who is able to get through the difficulties in order to find the the beauty and the value on the other side right and it's actually that discomfort and the challenge that that makes the thing worthwhile um and all this was occurring at the same time that i was doing my phd in sport history and sport philosophy and i'm learning about and reading about all these ideas about how using our bodies ennobles our spirits and builds our character and i had grown up playing sports and all these things just made sense to me uh, and once, but it wasn't until I started living it, it wasn't until I started embodying those values that I gained the strength to first be able to stand up against the university censorship mobs and fight for speech, free speech. And then absolutely the, the ability to defend my body from something I did not want to go into it and willing to deal with whatever consequences came out on the, on the other side, you know, it's those three things in combination over a long period of time that led me to become a person who was able to stand up on principle and not worry about the superficial or the expedient choice in, in the matter. Um, a bit of a long answer, but I, I believe that those are the things and it's not, not an easy process. It's not easy to become a person like that. Um, when everything in society tempts you to become weak and tempts you to just go along uh, with what everybody else is doing. Yeah, no, I think that everyone has their different, different path to that. Um, you know, and that, that one about, you know, doing, going into endurance sport, I'm sure there's other people that, that relate to that being the path, but, um, yeah, I think that just having some kind of hardship in your life, you know, whether that's, you know, even whether that's, you know, things being hard socially or things being difficult with, with poverty or whatever, you know, in, in your case, it's testing yourself through endurance and stuff like I think there's various ways that you can get to that, but I definitely think that going through some hardship in your life builds character. And just like what you were saying, you know, a lot of the, the problem with a lot of like progressive types and stuff is that, like you said, they're always trying to eliminate hardship from their lives and everyone else's lives. And, you know, that's kind of noble in some senses, but the problem is you can kind of, if you, if you're constantly saying, okay, well, this person, um, this person uh, is underprivileged and this person is underprivileged and we need to, you know, raise everyone, everyone up to the same level. Like that's great. If, if you're also accepting that people are going to start from different points, but when you say, okay, we're going to take away all of the strife in people's lives 
right? So that these people who are having a hard time don't have a hard time anymore or whatever. Like, like you said, you know, you end up, um, people end up just, just being weaker, weaker people. And, you know, I think this speaks to why you get so many people who have had hard times and have come to become big successes, right? Like you mentioned your, your grandfather and like what he'd come from and he started his own business and everything and ended up flourishing and sending his kids to university, et cetera. And there's a lot of stories like that. If you actually look at a lot of, you know, people who are very successful business people, a lot of them are immigrants, like a way, way higher proportion than you'd expect have come from, you know, countries that are kind of pretty bad, you know, that they're, they're violent or they have, you know, terrible economies or whatever, and they've gone somewhere else and then done really well for themselves. And the problem is, you know, we could try to sanitize society and say, okay, well, let's just make sure that everyone's, you know, nobody is underprivileged and everyone um, is able to uh, live a life of, you know, without any kind of strife or whatever. And then what you end up finding is that those people aren't as successful, right? You actually, you actually have successful people through having to go through hardship. And if we sanitize it all out, I wonder whether, you know, some people might never have achieved their success if they had no hardship in their life. And obviously I'm not saying, okay, well, we should make it harder for people. I'm just saying that I think that there's not really a correlation between people, um, you know, not having hardship in their life and then becoming successful and people having it. In fact, in many cases, I think that hardship can breed the qualities in a person which makes them successful. Yeah, absolutely. It breeds the resiliency. It breeds the grit in order to to stick with something even when it's not going well. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, it's funny, you talk to any of those success stories of the people who came from poverty. Yeah. I mean, would they have wished at the time to have not been in poverty, like, and to have a better or more comfortable life? Yes. But you talk to them as adults and you ask them like, what's the, what's the cause of your success? They're always going to go back to, oh, it was the overcoming of the struggle. It was the building yes. of character. And they're never going to then when they're adults say, you know, I would go back and remove the barriers. They would absolutely never say that because they know that that's the, the kind of the crucible that forged them into the, into the strong minded, ambitious, disciplined people who were able to go and, and achieve these, uh, go and achieve these incredible things. And, and people, I think intuitively understand this, you know, like the thing that popped into my mind when you were mentioning that was the old saying, you know, shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. It's like the person who builds an empire or who builds a successful business is the one who starts from nothing, learns all the hard and valuable lessons. They're able to then pass that on to like the next generation. So the next generation gets a little bit of that grit, a little bit of that resiliency, but they're not able to pass those lessons on to the next generation because they themselves didn't grow up in the impoverished, in the difficult situation, you know, that their, that their parent did. And so you end up seeing the grandchildren of the people who create these big companies or these successful businesses, they squander it all because they have none. <laughs> they have none of the original characteristics that allowed that initial person to succeed. And so people naturally understand that that's the order of things. Um, and it's also captured in the, the sort of like the meme, you know, like, um, what is it like, uh, hard men, hard men make good times, good, good times make, make so like weak, weak men, weak men make hard times, hard times make strong men sort of thing. Yes. Right. It's, yeah. And, and yeah, that's cliched a little bit, but uh, we, we know it's true. We, we all, we yeah. all know it's true. And what stops us from allow, it's funny because what, what generally gets in the way 
is gaming the system. This is one of the reasons why we end up with like crony capitalists is because they end up enacting rules that 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 stop this natural progression of shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves or the up and comers coming to topple uh, the big behemoths. We see it all the time in a, in a business setting. We all understand it in terms of like the cutthroat cut throat, uh, nature of business. But the progressives who want to get in there and they want to smooth out all the experiences of the world for us, right? Like to create a weakness and, and, and something popped into my mind when you were talking about this, like maybe they want to create weakness so that they can control everybody, which makes really good sense because the progressive mindset is a controlling mindset. Um, yeah, I, I absolutely think that. <laughs> I think I think of these people, they know what creates a weak society and they and they want to bring it about. I think they're trying to breed out kind of strong men in particular, but I would say just strong people more generally is definitely front and center of the agenda. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. And so it's when you kind of like when you when you sync all those up, it makes sense that people intuitively know that this is true, but we're not getting the social signals that that verify it. You know what I mean? Like we don't see it as we don't see it as explicitly in society as we would have without a lot of the regulations, the rules and the constraints that are put put, put upon the free action of individuals in, in society. You know what I mean? Yeah. So going back to um, so, so this this kind of uh, transition for you when you, you you kind of got into endurance sports and trail running and stuff. Wh- when was that? Did you say? Um, that was about 20, 2013, 2014, 2012 Was when I made okay. the transition. I ended up getting my kid. I ended up getting my kidney stones in twenty ten, and then I kind of wallowed in victimhood for a little while until I kind of put all the thing, all the things that I was talking about together. I entered my PhD right. in Jan- January of 2012. And I would suggest that that sort of like back half of 2011 and coming into 2012 was when everything really started to click for me. Right. Okay. Okay. So yeah, you, um, you know, you got into to trail running and stuff like that. And um, you mentioned when you were talking about that, that you had this kind of almost like a spiritual connection with trail running. Do you mind going into that a bit? <laughs> yeah, it's based upon uh, some of my academic work as well. Like I, uh, I don't work at a university now, but uh, I was a sport historian and a sport philosopher. Um, so these are kind of like my areas uh, of, of expertise. Um, my, I am also kind of an expert in the evolution of political thought because my, my dissertation was how the creation of national sports is representative of the shift away from a classical liberal thought to a progressive or collectivist liberal thought uh, in the transition from the late 19th to the early 20th century. Um, so all this stuff is right, right, right in my wheelhouse. Um, but it was, it was learning a little bit more of the ancient Greek um, belief about what sports do and what they are. And as a historian, I'm always interested in the genesis of things. And the ancient Greeks are the ones that gave us the idea of athletic competitions for the sake just of athletic competitions, like without a utility attached to them. Uh, Like cultures throughout the world, all cultures throughout the world have physical tests, um, but they're usually linked to like a leadership position or like a military position or military training or something like that. Like there's a, there's an obvious utility as to why we're training our bodies, but the ancient Greeks right. just trained their bodies for the sake of training their bodies, right? Like in the Greeks were aesthetic, they were aesthetically 
um, minded. It's like, we'll do philosophy just for philosophy. We'll do architecture just for architecture. Like they were very interested in beauty uh, and they were very interested in those kind of elements of, of, of culture. Um, so for them, yeah. Yeah. athletics was the crucible towards personal transcendence and they could, they could legitimately in a moment of athletic perfection, uh, touch the fingertips of the gods. Um, this is all based off of kind of like the emergence of, uh, the history and the mythology of somebody like Hercules, um, and sort of the, the threads of heroism and physical action through mythological tales and heroic poems like the Iliad uh, and, and the Odyssey. Um, so it was kind of like that, getting that historical background and then syncing it with my understanding of Judeo-Christian religion. Um, like I'm Jewish, so um, syncing it up with that, those ideas, and then also locating and um, tracking the progression of the athletic ideal throughout history. Um, one, it just it solidified in my mind that athletics and sport belong to religion. They don't belong to base culture. The fact that we have them as part of entertainment and spectacle shrouds the fact that they come from religion and just shows us, shows me that we misuse and misapply them in our society. Okay. Can, can you, can you delve into that a bit more? Cause uh, I've never, I've never heard that before that they're related to religion. Okay. So, um, the ancient Olympics, um, was a festival that was held for 1000 years continuously from the year 776 BC uh, to the year 394 AD. And they were banned by the Christian Roman emperor Theodosius because they were pagan festivals. Right. So really, yeah. And because the ancient Olympics is a religious celebration to Zeus. Okay. Um, the ancient Olympics take place in Olympia. Olympia is at the foot of Mount Olympus. Who lives on Mount Olympus? All the Olympian gods. So all of the athletes who compete at the Olympics, before they compete, they all go to the Temple of Zeus. And the Temple of Zeus houses the Statue of Zeus. And the Statue of Zeus is one of the eight ancient wonders of the world. It's this massive absolutely behemoth statue and all the athletes file in through the temple and they all swear essentially and give prayers to Zeus before the athletic competitions. So the Olympics themselves are religious. The Olympic competition that all of our, a lot of our understanding of athletics comes down from were religious festivals. The very first written account of athletic competition in world history comes to us from Homer and it comes to us in the Iliad. So if people are familiar with the Iliad, they might kind of know what I'm talking about here. Um, but I'll just set the scene a little bit. Um, the Iliad revolves around Achilles and sort of his like, will I fight? Will I, will I not fight in the, in the Trojan war? Uh, so there's a, a part of the, Tro there's a part of the Iliad where um, Achilles it's, depending on the sources you're reading, it's his cousin, like it's his closest friend or, or it's his homosexual lover. And it could be all three. We just don't know. Um, Patroclus, like Achilles doesn't want to fight and Achilles is the best fighter in the Greek army. And all the other soldiers basically can be like stirred to fight if they see Achilles or they are just going to be like, I'm not going anywhere without Achilles. So Patroclus takes Achilles armor, 
like to imitate Achilles, inspire the troops. Everyone kind of looks at it. They say, oh, Achilles is is fighting. So they all go uh, and they follow Patroclus. Patroclus finds um, the Trojan hero on the other side. That's Hector. They engage in one on one battle uh, and Hector kills Patroclus. Uh, spoiler alert if people haven't read the Iliad or they want to go watch Troy. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> Troy is actually not a bad movie to understand this. That's the one with Brad Pitt and Eric Bana and Orlando Bloom. It was, I think, 2004. Yeah, yeah it's not a bad one, actually. It's, it's not it's not bad. Um, it's pretty good. Um, but whatever. So. So then Hector pulls off the, 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 the helmet and he realizes, oops, I did not just kill Achilles. I killed somebody else. This is really bad. Um, Achilles is enraged. He challenges Hector to one-on-one battle. He kills Hector. He desecrates his body. It's a big deal because the body has to, there are particular rights. There are religious rights that accompany a fallen soldier or a fallen king or a fallen prince that's going to transfer their soul from this, the world of the living to the world of the dead. And these are very important. They're very important religious rights. Like the king of Troy comes to Achilles' tent in the middle of the night and, and is like sobbing and pleads with Achilles, like, please return the body of my son so that we can bury him. This is after he's desecrated the body. Um, and it's still not even sure if, if Hector is going to be able to cross over or not. He, he does. And then he's got to do the same thing for Patroclus. Patroclus's body, Patroclus's soul has to be ferried uh, from the land of the living to the land of the dead. How does Achilles do this? He holds athletic contests and a festival, essentially. So at the funeral, it's a, it's a funeral rites, a funeral rite for a fallen soldier in this archaic Greek world or the Homeric Greek world, pardon me, is to see how fast we can run against each other. How, how, how uh, can we, re- can, can we wrestle each other to the ground? Can we box against each other? Who can throw the farthest, who can throw the longest discus? That's mm-hmm. what Achilles does in order to prepare the transfer of this soul of a fallen warrior, um, and within this these athletic contests, we begin to see the um, the sketchings of the idea that athletics is the place where our true character is both cultivated, but then also performed. Right, the people who perform in these athletic contests, they're the kings of Greece. They're the generals. They're the fiercest warriors. They're the elites of the elites of the elites in society, and they're the ones that, that submit themselves to running races, to chariot races, to boxing, to wrestling, to discus, to javelin throw. And so the very first time we even hear about athletics is in a religious framework. Um, And that just sort of punctuates my understanding of them. And especially because of this moral part of athletics, right? If athletics teach us to acquire, like if athletics are a place for us to acquire character and then to display it and perform it in front of other people, well, that's kind of also in the realm of religion, right? Religion tells us what's good and what's bad in the world. It tells us how to behave and how not to behave, right? It's related to our moral foundations, right? So if sports role in society is to engender positive character traits and then give us a place to display them and execute them and perform them. To me, that speaks again, more of a religious nature than spectacle or entertainment or the things that we 
generally associate with sport uh, in our in our contemporary society today. So that was a bit of a long winded answer. That's prof mode. <laughs> I apologize <laughs> about that, but hopefully that 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 got a little bit to the answer. But if not, uh, let me know, and I'm happy to go even further into it. Yeah, for sure. Actually, just when you was when you were talking about that, it reminded me. Um, you know, here in Mexico, we've got like a lot of these. Um, you know, ancient kind of like pyramid structures and stuff like that that were built by, you know, the Mayans. And um, I think maybe the Aztecs as well, but the ones, certainly ones that I've seen were Mayan ones. And um, they had this game. I mean, you'll, I'll probably be trying to, <laughs> trying to teach the professor something he already knows here, but um, they had this, this, this game, which it was almost like they had a hoop where you could, where you throw a ball through and the ball was made, it was made of something really heavy. I don't know exactly what it was, but they would kind of like, they would almost like do a like keepy ups with it in some way, like between them. And then they had to get it in the hoop. And the interesting thing was they, they would play this game. It was the big, it was the, the game of the, the culture basically. Um, you know, they had this big square type thing where, where they would play it. And, but at the end, uh, at the end of the game, the, the winning team sacrifice, like their captain got sacrificed basically. Right. So, so they literally, they would win the game. They would be trying to win the game. And when they won the game, they would come and they would just stab the winning team's captain. Right. And I just found this really amazing that like that a culture could emerge whereby they believed that this, that this sport was kind of so sacred, um, that they were literally willing to play the game, win it, and then have their captain killed. So they kind of like, you would think, oh, well, I'm going to try and lose, right? If we did that today and we said, hey, by the way, you know, we're going to play a game of football. Um, the winning team is going to have their captain sacrificed. Well, nobody would score a goal, right? Everyone would be like, well, fuck <laughs> that. Like, I don't want to be the first yeah, yeah, kill. Yeah. But this culture, they killed the, the captain. And I find that amazing. And I think that maybe is along a similar lines of what you're talking about, that they saw this intrinsic link between the nature of playing sport and becoming closer to God. You know, they genuinely thought you were, you were yes. going to go and be amongst the gods or whatever, I mean, I don't know too much about the the belief system, but you know, they thought that yeah. through this process of of winning sport, you were somehow becoming, uh, yeah, um, I don't know, going into the afterlife or whatever. Yeah, yeah, it's the game is that game is sort of shrouded in a lot of mystery. We don't necessarily know what the outcome was. Like, there's a lot of speculation on on the outcome that you described. But there's also people who will argue that the losing team was the one that got sacrificed. Um, oh, really? Oh, I, everyone I've been to, they've said that it was the winning team. That might be true. Like uh, when we're talking about the Aztecs, it's it's difficult. They have um, there are like a, there are kind of like a few. This is just like my personal take on it. Uh, there are a yeah. few civilizations in history just that stand apart that are so unique that it's almost impossible to compare them to others. And the Aztecs is one of those cultures. They have such a unique belief system. Their, their society is essentially sustained through live ritual sacrifice in order to keep the world turning. Like they believe that the sun needs fresh human blood from a, from a beating heart in order to rise every morning. So their entire society is essentially built around human ritual sacrifice. Um, so that's why sacrifice is such a high place in that society. Um, but we don't know. We don't know if the people that were playing were captives. We don't know if they were volunteer, volunteers. Right. We know it's kind of likely related to the military. Like it's just, it's, it's one of those games that's shrouded in mystery. Um, but you know, if, if 
everybody in Mexico, if that's what they're saying, like then that's that's likely the consensus that's emerging around this. Um, and I do think that that take is really an interesting one. And it's but but here's the difference. OK, here's the difference, um, because the Aztecs aren't doing this for just the for 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 the reason of just playing the game. They're doing it for a utility. They're doing it so that the sacrifice in the end will sustain life, essentially, in one way or not in one way or another. So the game has a very outsized utility to it as well. For the Greeks, we, I can tell you a story, and this is one of my favorite stories from the ancient from the ancient Greek world uh, in terms of athletics that gets at that same point, but relates it more so to this idea of individualism, freedom, liberty, individual flourishing, and the ability for individuals to make up their lives what they want. Um, because one of the incredible things about my study of sport is there's really two societies in the history of the world that have given us sport, and really it's one the Greeks, the ancient Greeks, the, the classical Greeks, they gave it to us. And then it was the Victorian Brits who essentially revived that idea. And what's striking about both of these two societies is relative to their peers and relative to other societies in the history of the world. I don't know if there are any two societies that have advanced the idea of individual liberty more so than those two general societies. Uh, I'm talking about early Victorian Britain. Like the, the, the Victorian Britain that like abolished slavery and got rid of the slave trade and like, you know, uh, got rid of the tariffs and every like, no, you know, got talk rid of the, about that, Jordan, we've got to, got to pretend that we were the evil. We were always the evil ones. Can't talk about the abolition of slavery. Will <laughs> Makes it sound like we did some good stuff. <laughs> Wilberforce is a hero of, of humanity. Cobden and Bright are legends and they should be, they should, these names should be celebrated and echoed throughout the world. Totally. Yeah. Isn't it crazy? We don't, we don't hear about them. I mean, that tells you a lot about society, right? Like someone, someone like William yeah. Wilberforce, like isn't yeah. the fact that, that, that he's not talked about. I mean, this should be one of the greatest uh, heroes in history. But. I, I, I think I have a, I've got a, I got a copy of a practical view of Christianity. Like it's such an amazing, he's such an amazing guy. Like it's unbelievable, but that's the kind of a tangent. Um, but both of these yeah. societies, right? These are the societies that picked up on this idea uh, that sport is a vehicle for personal transcendence because it allows us to cultivate characteristics, right? That, that are, that are useful as individuals living in a society that, that demands responsibility from those into from those individuals in exchange for the freedom that that they get um wow so that, was a, athletes, that was a really nice that was a very nice summary yeah that, that yeah that's um yeah that speaks a lot of truth right there sorry yeah carry on i don't want to interrupt your flow <laughs> no not, not 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 a problem at all every once in a while i'll spit out some words that are really nice um <laughs> uh, <laughs> but 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 you know it's not an accident right that Athletic competition emerges at the exact same time as the democracy, at the exact same time of the hoplites, you know, the independent yeoman farmer who pays for his own armor and is responsible to defense of his own city state. And because he fights and because he has the ability to produce armor, he has the privilege of voting in the assembly and potentially leading that society if the people vote, vote, vote for him. Right. Um, and and. Sport has an incredible connection to to this. Uh, that's what I've that's what I've uncovered, um, and it's through this notion of like a, an archetype or like a mythological figure that the athlete is an individual who goes on this particular hero's journey through their body, achievement, and excellence in an individual 
capacity uh, that ennobles everybody else in the society to buckle down, work hard and shoot for the goals that, that, that they're, that they, that they aim towards. Um, and this was such a powerful idea that, that athletes were willing to die for this idea. They weren't willing to die like they were in the Aztec situation where their sacrifice would mean the literal sustainment of life on earth and the fact that the earth would continue to exist. So I'm going to tell you the story of Arkishan. Arkishan is a pancreationist. Pancration is like ancient Greek mixed martial arts. It's a combination of boxing and wrestling. The only two rules in ancient pancration are no eye gouging and no biting. Those are the only two things you're not allowed to do. Everything else is total fair game. So Arkishan, he's a champion. He's won at two Olympics in a row. Um, so he's coming back for his third Olympics and his kind of like personal dream is to be an, one of these undefeated champions, to be known throughout history as someone who went to Olympia and never lost. Uh, so he's in his third Olympiad. He's in the final match, but things are not going well for Arkishan. He is losing. He's about to he's about to lose big time. He's being strangled uh, by his opponent. Right. And, and it's at that moment. And this is like we're talking like real strangulation, not like not like the chokeholds you see in mixed martial arts, but like I'm going to strangle you to death type of strangulation. Oh, so it was to the death. Um, and so, yeah, it, was, it wasn't to the death, but de- but death, death occurred. Oh, right. um, okay. Death actually occurred the most in the boxing. If that may, it's it's they used to box with like these leather gloves, these leather straps on. And you can just imagine like the brutality of a bare knuckle boxing with, with almost like brass knuckles on them, mm. uh, that produced the most amount of death. Um, but death was part of it. Death was certainly part of the combat athletes, um, expectation. Um, so our Kishin, he's like at the end, he's, he's basically at the, at the end and, and he's really thinking about tapping and, and giving up. He's like, I'm not going to win. Uh, and, and, and maybe I just, maybe I escape out of here. Um, you know, in second place, as it that he's he, his trainer is in the is in the crowd, and his trainer kind of looks in his face and he sees, oh, he's about to quit. So his trainer yells to him, and this is what he is purported to have said. Um, he yells, "What a noble epitaph! He who was never defeated at Olympia." Um, so for those who don't know what an epitaph is, an epitaph is kind of like the phrase that goes on your tombstone. It's like the thing that sums up your life after you're gone. So he yells at Arkishan, like, Hey, this can still be you. You can still be known throughout history as the, per- as a person who was never defeated at Olympia, but you've got to go through the ultimate struggle. You got to go through the ultimate sacrifice in order to achieve that glory unto yourself. So in his last breath in his last energy Arkishan grabs the toe of his opponent who's strangling him and he snaps it Damn. at the at the very at the very moment that Arkishan snaps this guy's toe he dies from strangulation it's like the ultimate drama you can imagine right so now the judges they're left with this pretty interesting scene because when Arkishan breaks this opponent's toe the opponent gives up so the opponent gives up at the same time Arkishan dies. And so they're like, well, what are we supposed to do? I think you know where this is going. They pick up the dead body of Arkishan. They put him on the shoulders of the crowd and they give him 
the olive wreath, which is the the trophy that all the ancient Olympians uh, win. That's the only thing they get is this olive wreath, which disintegrates by the next day. So the guy who's willing to die in order to win is the one who is proclaimed champion. And one of my favorite parts of this whole story is they didn't even bother telling us the name of the person who quit. He's just known as whoever he was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's amazing. He doesn't, yeah, even, that's... he doesn't even get his name bloody mentioned. <laughs> yeah. So well, like, we, were, we were just a different breed of humans, right? <laughs> it's just, yeah, stories like that, you know, and there's quite a lot of them in kind of, you know, ancient, yeah. ancient history with stuff like that. And you just think, wow, like we were, there was something different about the human spirit. And, you know, I guess, you know, from, from having this conversation for sure, like sport is really, really integral to that. Yes. And so like when we talk about maybe like that juxtaposition between like the, the way the Aztecs had kind of like death folded into their, their sport, this gives us a very different conception because here's an individual choosing under his own power, using the freedom of action to determine his own destiny and potential in life. Right. And that's to me what sort of links up this idea of sport as personal transcendence to the politics of liberty and the politics of freedom. It's not an accident that when you uncover sport and you use, utilize it for this purpose in your society, that the biggest gains in advancing human liberty have come from those societies. It's not an accident. I don't think it could possibly be a coincidence in history either. Um, there's too many societies, there's too many cultural activities, there's too many experiments concurrently going on throughout all of time and space and place that for this thing to be like the common bond between those two societies who have both done so much in advancing our understanding of, of individuality and liberty and flourishing and freedom, it's not an accident. I'm interested to, to know like where you how would you kind of break down that link then? Because I can, you know, I can see very clearly the link in terms of, you know, uh, sport and the culture around sport leading to, you know, individuality for sure and building, building character and stuff. But where does that link in with, you know, ideas like liberty and freedom? It's the, it's, it's the idea that, Athletic training is the training that is necessary for freedom. That athletic training is the training of mind and body and spirit, which allows you to assume the responsibilities of liberty, right? Mm -hmm. It's the people who competed in the Olympics. They were the soldiers. They were the farmers. They were the politicians. They were the ones that voted themselves, that voted in the, in the assemblies. They were the same person, Right. You didn't get a statue built for you in the ancient Greek world for being a great politician. They just thought that that would lead to ego. And for obvious reasons, you know, they had ostracism and banishment uh, and, and, and ways to guard against any one individual accruing too much political power. They didn't build statues to victorious generals who won battles. Who did they build statues to? Athletes. When you won at the Olympics, your home city state would build you a beautiful statue right athleticism athletic competition teaches us that we're responsible and we're responsible through our hard work and our dedication 
I mean, does this just not sound like the bubblings up of a, of a, of a free market basis, right? Mm-hmm. What you, what you gain and what you earn in the world is dependent upon your effort, your ability, your talent, your ambition, your ability to work well with other people, right? Ultimately it's on you. And that's what athletics does. It locates the motive power of society within the individuals who populate that society. And it's that connection to character and the, 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 the moral guidance that comes from it, that, that, that makes people capable of being liberated in terms of like an individualist polity uh, or an individualist society. Otherwise it's collectivism all the way down um, in, in, in that sense. Um, it's just that it's that link between responsibility and personal heroism as opposed to accepting victimhood. I'm the one who's in charge of my own story. I'm the one who determines what happens to me. And it's all based upon the amount of suffering I'm willing to endure in order to achieve what I want. And for all of the, the lessons that you can listen to through scriptures and all of the philosophy you can read and all the stories that can try to teach you this there really isn't much of a substitution for doing it yourself with your own body, running a sprint, doing a hundred meter race, just you there's no running a pun, 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 not intended. There's no running away from the pain that comes with running as fast as you can for a hundred meters. Your lungs are going to burn. Your muscles are going to be sore, right? You have to go through it in order to get anything out of it. That's what athletics, that's what sports teaches you. And it just, it just, it is an embodied understanding of the responsibility that's required for free uh, for a free society. And when you when you when you uncover that link and you make it an important part of your society, everything just syncs up. And it's just it's the historical record is clear is is clear is clear on this. Um, and then when sport gets debauched, which it always does because humans are fallible and we ruin things. Then you start to see a tilt away from that. So we we move from the Roman democracy into the Roman Empire and the spectacle. We move from the amateur. Um, so so it's not as if like sport is this perfect activity um, that when you utilize it, everything goes hunky dory in your society. It's fallible because humans are fallible, and it's an activity that's done and created by humans. Um, so it has the power to tilt us towards liberty and individualism, but that's dependent upon the people who are utilizing it and the ways in which we aim that, that activity in our society. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's definitely, um, they're definitely, you can, you can kind of sense these things, you know, I kind of feel like, you know, we, we were talking before about the whole um, you know, hard times create strong men, you know, strong men create good times, good times create weak men and stuff. And it's almost like sport and, you know, the, the, like physical endurance kind of gives you the opportunity to become that, um, become the, you know, the, the strong, the strong man without necessarily having the hard times, you know, it's, it's almost like a, a way of, of kind of breaking that down a level further and saying, well, look, you know, we don't have to wait until the world's falling apart to kind of like find your character. You can do it through things like sport. You can do it through things like, uh, you know, endurance and stuff like that. So, um, you know, you could definitely, um, I think you can make parallels there, you know, between what's happening on that societal level through these big, big kind of generational cycles and the ability for you to kind of create that cycle for yourself. You know, you might have the, you might have a great life and everything's really easy and you're, you know, you're living in a wonderful place and there's no crime and you've got all the money you care to, to need. 
And then um, from that, you can kind of say, okay, well, that's not going to build my character. So you can put yourself into those difficult situations, I guess, through, you know, I mean, many pe people will do it in, in different ways. Some people will do it through entrepreneurship. Some people will do it through, you know, whatever it is, um, you know, learning any kind of skill, but like, you know, sport and endurance, I think can be a really, really central way that you can kind of, um, you know, know yourself, you know, and, and build your own character. Yeah, it's an excellent way to put it. And, and oftentimes I can, I, I, I will describe sport as almost like a dream state. You know, it's like, it's not real, but what happens is real. Kind of like the dream is not real, but you can have incredible realizations from a dream. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And then you can take those realizations and use them to implement real change in your life through action. Um, it's the same thing with sport. Like, does it really matter who scores the most goal on a football pitch? Does it really matter who runs the fastest? Like, I, no, of course not. These are not objectively good in the way in which like, helping somebody like um, cure an illness is an objective good in society, right? There's no, there's no, there's no reason why running as fast as we can against other people trying to run as fast as they can should produce anything objectively good in society. But it's that idea of the training ground. It's this idea of the dreamscape where we practice bringing ourselves into contact with discomfort, with struggle and forcing ourselves to assume responsibility and to sacrifice in order to achieve you nailed it. It's exactly right. It's a low stakes uh, way for us to engage in those lessons so that we can take them into the real world and then uh, apply, apply them. And mm -hmm. we don't need to go through war. We don't need to go through depression. We don't have to create real discomfort. We can submit voluntarily to an artificial type of discomfort that we do unto ourselves and we can gain very similar, not, not necessarily the exact qualities, but close enough yeah. that when the real adversity actually does hit in the real world, we've already been, we've already been using those muscles. You know what I mean? It's what allowed me to, when the vaccine mandate came down, I didn't even hesitate into thinking like, well, what am I going to be doing? I knew mm -hmm. what I was doing. I knew the stand that I needed to take. I knew that where I was going to be pushed and it wasn't any farther back from where I was currently standing at that, at that, at that moment. And it's because I do things to myself that other people look at me and they say, you're kind of crazy, man. Why do you do that? Like, like you shouldn't be doing this thing. What is, what is wrong with you? And to that, I say, you're right. There is a little bit something wrong with me and y'all just don't get it in that sense. Um, so I think it's just, I think you're, you, I think you, you did a really good job of, of translating that, um, that idea. And that's, that's, I believe what ultimately puts sport back into that spiritual religious mode, because it's a place where morality is learned and practiced. And then ultimately, ultimately our place of sort of like a reserve of experience for when we, when we really need to when we really need our spirits to be strong. Um, yeah, we've, we've got yeah. that in our back. We've got that in our back pockets, but only if you do sport in the right way. And only if you understand that that's the reason why we have sport. And that's the reasons why you should be participating in it. And even when you're watching it, those are the things that you should be. Those are the things that you should be looking for. Right. Okay. So for people who, you know, maybe kind of aren't into sport or, you know, 
who might be listening to this and thinking, okay, this is something I want to go through. I want to build my character through sport. What would you recommend for those, for those people to kind of get started in, in building that character? Okay. So the first thing that I think is extremely important in all of this is loving the way it feels to move your body. I don't believe that any lasting change or transformation comes from a place of external motivation. Anything that is going to be transformative, and especially if you're talking about acquiring virtue and moral character that will allow you to have a spirit that's strong enough to stand on principle, you have to do something that you just want to be doing. You have to start with love. That's why for me, trail running was it. Because the the moment I got on the trail, I fell in love with the way my body had to move in order to get down that trail in a fast way. I loved how none of my steps were the same. I loved how I had to take short steps to get in between some sections. I had to take long jumps. Uh, I loved how I couldn't really even see where I was going because, you know, in a forest trail, you're weaving and you're winding. And so everything is like, it's very dynamic. Um, there's not the ability to, at least when you're starting, there's not the ability to like turn your mind off. Once you get good at it, you, you can, but it's not like running on a treadmill or running on a road where it's just like a straightaway, you know? So my advice is start with a sport or a physical activity that you love to do. Do not go uphill. I hate going to the gym. You're never going to find me inside of like a, a gym doing weightlifting because it's, I don't like it. It doesn't speak to my body. Yeah. Same. I do I resistance. It, it feels really sanitized to me, gyms. It just feels very, I feel like I'm on a, um, you know, like on a conveyor belt almost just going through yeah. and being like, now I work this. And I, I always work out outside. I, I just find it so much more, yes. I'm just so much more connected when I do that. Yeah. I'm the, I'm the, I'm the exact same way. So like there's the sterilized environment of the gym you can go to like pretty dirty and dingy gyms though that you go in you're like oh my gosh a bunch of savages must live here um <laughs> but yeah. but even even absent that it's just like if i'm going to the gym and like and i want to work out on a machine and somebody's using it now i gotta wait and i'm like i'm not doing that i don't want to wait i just want to i want to be able to move my body on my own schedule sort of thing it's a very selfish way of thinking about it but like that's that's part of the hang up for me um as as, as well um So find something you love to do like and for a lot of us playing a sport is a lot easier than going and doing exercises. It's a lot more fun like to play a pickup game of of footy like with your friends uh, or to go to go go grab a basketball and shoot some hoops. Right. Um, So that's that's really my biggest advice. Fall in love with moving your body and then you'll want to do the hard work in order to get better at doing it. I lift weights. I do resistance work, not because I love doing it, but because it helps me on the trails. And it also helps me with my other love, uh, which is golf. I love playing golf. Um, golf. And I think golf is go- golf. Yeah. Golf is powerful. Golf is a powerful oh, sport for the I'm not a golf fan at all. That's where, that's where we're going to diverge. <laughs> yeah, Jordan. <laughs> yeah. That's okay. That's okay. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll convert you over time. Um, uh, <laughs> well, yeah. everyone says like, you know, my, my dad's a huge, huge, like he's an absolute golf addict and he's like, Oh, you know, you'll get, you'll reach a certain age and he's like, you'll, you'll suddenly you'll like golf and you'll play it. And I'm like, it's not going to happen, dad. And yeah, I, we'll, we'll see. But right now I can't see it happening. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, and that's fine. It's like, and then, so for me, if you were like, if it was your question, you're like, Hey, I don't work out and I want to, and I want to figure it out. I'd be like, well, definitely don't start golfing. Like, cause you yeah, hate that. Yeah, don't yeah. do something. Don't do something you hate. Think about something that you love. Think about something that you love. Or if you don't know what that is, 
just start experimenting. Go try a whole bunch of different things. Try new things you've never done. Go to the gym, yeah. jump in a pool, get on a bike. Like just try a whole bunch of different things until something clicks. Mm-hmm. It's just like any other sports, like any other cultural activity. It's like music or art or literature or food. It's like, yeah, some things you're going to like about like you don't like every kind of food, but you've got a favorite kind of food. Same with music. It's like you like to listen to, listen to certain kinds of music and other types of music. When somebody puts it on, like you're running out of the room. Same thing with sport. Yeah. Like, so don't think that you've got to do it in any one particular way. Start out with love. Find something you love to do. You'll be internally motivated to do it. You'll find a community. And then that natural internal drive of, I want to get better at this because I really enjoy doing it and I want to improve and I want my, and I want to acquire talent and I want to have skill. Well, then that's going to push you into, oh, shoot. Maybe I got to work on my cardiovascular. Maybe I need to go for a run. Oops, maybe I'm not, maybe I need more upper body strength. Shoot, I got to get into the gym and lift weights, right? But you'll have this drive within you to get through that discomfort. And the more discomfort that you expose yourself to, the easier it is to jump over those hurdles and creates a positive feedback loop. Yeah. But without love as the engine, very difficult to start, very difficult to keep going. You've got to be an extraordinarily disciplined individual and even then i believe you'll begin to discipline yourself more like a bully than you will be sort of like pushing yourself forward through positive discipline it's kind of like we all we all understand like the authoritarian like the coach who just yells at you or like the teacher who's got like the wood the ruler who'll smack your hand or whatever it's like you can get results that way Absolutely. But are the people who are giving the results really happy about it? (laughs) Are they really happy that you're like coercing them and threatening them? Like, no, you're never going to produce your best work doing that. You will have outcomes, but it's not like that, 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 that love, that internal drive. So discipline is important, but I think love is, I think love is more important. So that's my advice. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Great advice. Um, Is there any more topics you wanted to, to delve into before we shut this down? I mean, like we could maybe dive into a little bit more of like the political, there are really strong political reverberations throughout both the societies and history that relate to it. There's philosophical things like tracking the idea of individualism through Aristotle and St. Thomas Aquinas. <laughs> like there's deep shit that we could, that we could get into, but uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if we need to go down those roads, to be honest. I think there's a lot of stuff there. Um, I could talk forever about this stuff, so I'm the worst person to ask. Is there anything? Is there any? Is there anything that? Is there anything that you think that I could talk more about, uh, or 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 any or any or experiences? Um, no, I mean, I think that was a really that was a really nice primer. I mean, I've definitely like learned learned a lot through this, but also like I don't know, it's you can kind of just get a sense for it, you know, like looking at these societies, like we were talking about, you can kind of just sense that they had a different like character about them. You know, the, the, the people, the people within them and everything and sport being so central to that. Um, and like you said, the kind of the celebration of, of the, uh, the, uh, the elite sports person and stuff. And, you know, like you said, I think uh, aside from a kind of decline in, in general character, I think now that we see in a world where now, you know, you've gone from stuff like this, where people would fight to the death in, you know, in these, uh, arenas or whatever for their, for the integrity of their, their name or, or whatever it is, or, or to, to kind of, to try to self-actualize. And, and now we're, we're mm. looking at a world where people, 
you know, people just want to like sit in at home and, you know, wear a mask and, and not go anywhere because they might, you know, get a virus and they're willing yes. to literally give away any freedom for their safety. And I think that, I think that there's a connection there and, you know, I, but I do hope, and I do, I believe, I believe, but I also hope that like what we're going through now in this, in this, um, this change of society, like as hard times become much more, um, much harder really. And they, they seem to be getting harder by the day that we are going to have a reversal of this trend. I think that we're kind of overdue for a correction now. Um, so, you know, hopefully that will change and people will, will start recognizing again that, you know, there's more to life than safety. There's more to life than just being comfortable and just getting through it. Like we have to, we have to get back to thinking, what is life about? What's the essence of it? You know? And I think that you can come to an understanding of that through sport. Um, but in the world that we're, we're living in now, it's kind of like people have lost that. It's just like, I'm just living for living's sake. I don't care if I'm at home wearing a mask, watching Netflix every day, as long as I'm living, you know, as long as I've, I, I have no risk. And I think there's a connection there. And, you know, I think that with everything happening in the world, we're going to see a, a resurgence of, of kind of, you know, through hard times, a resurgence of, of strong men, and maybe we'll have a new resurgence of sport as well through that. And we'll, we'll start seeing sport in a different way. It'll be interesting to see if in the next few years, we see another um, cycle like the ones that you're talking about, that we go into a new renaissance of, of sport. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, that would be the hope. And it certainly feels like we're going through some big kind of shift here um, in terms of like collective consciousness or something or something like that, yeah. you know, like. Totally. I don't know. I, I mean, certainly, certainly we can't describe it with any kind of real accuracy. Um, but I think the people who are probably listening to this podcast feel it in their guts. Yeah. Um, and I'm a big believer that the gut knows a lot more than, than we give it credit for. Uh, we like to think that the brain knows a lot, but I think the, I think the brain tends to trick itself. And I think the gut is usually the, uh, the arrow towards truth. Um, yes. So we're feeling this in our gut. We're feeling as if there's a churn, right? There's that this is a difficult time, but on the other, on the other side of this, will be like almost like a spiritual rebirth. And I, I don't know. I don't know kind of what you know about the idea of like millennialism, but we are coming up to the year 2033. Um, do you know the significance of that year? No. Potentially. Well, do you know who was killed in the year 33 AD? 33 AD. No. Well, uh, that that's the year that Jesus was crucified and then returned. Oh, so but I thought one of the was, things that wasn't that the year the, like zero. I thought that whole thing was like the AD began. No, uh, like oh, no, AD is uh, the year of our Lord. A AD is the year of our. Oh. It's a Latin for uh, uh, the year of our, the year of our Lord. Oh, is that that's the year of so, his birth, not the year of his death? The year of his birth. So he uh, dies in thirty three, and one thousand years later. 1033 there's a wave of religious fervor that overtakes the christian world and this fervor this millennial fervor is one of the preconditions to the crusades mm -hmm. um so there's this idea that there's this kind of like pent-up spiritual energy that can be released in at particular moments and I'll just use the United States as an example. The United States has had many moments of awakenings or great awakenings where religious fervor 
flows across the land with incredible intensity and incredible speed. And I have nothing to base this off of, but I'm like, we're kind of approaching this 2033 year. I'm not Christian, um, but I studied the Crusades in university um, as a history student. And I don't know, like to me, to me, it could all be kind of lining up for some, for some, for something like that. Again, there's no science behind any of that. This is just gut. This is threading together some loose threads through the history that I've read um, and the way that I understand how sometimes these things can emerge. But I wouldn't be surprised if we are heading towards this kind of massive moment of a reawakening, yes, of I a agree. spiritual kind of a re- rebirth. I don't know what that looks like. Yeah. But there seems to be momentum heading in that direction. And I just think if one 1000 years ago, there was enough of this energy to essentially like kick off one of the most wild periods in, in human history, which is the Crusades. Um, well, shoot, who knows what could be happening? Who knows what could be happening with us, with all of our technology and all the connections that we have? If that energy thing is real, well, then shoot, we could be hurtling towards something like that is I, I, I don't I don't know beyond beyond certainly my ability uh, to to predict. But as sort of I started off, I think there's the gut feeling that we're moving towards something like that. And you know, there are little road signs that 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 maybe the gut is t- telling us something important. So that's my hope is that a kind of a reawakening of, con- of, of, of consciousness that points us towards like the higher values that we should be uh, striving for as humans. You know, yes. you talked about those older societies, maybe they were geared more towards self-actualization and our society is geared more towards like safety and comfort. Well, if we think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, like self-actualization is the highest need on the pyramid and the lowest ones are the base ones, the safety, the comfort. And our societies are, are essentially limiting us or limiting the vast majority of people from moving up the ladder of that hierarchy of needs, right? We're not able to self-actualize. Most people, they don't even think about self-actualization because society is imprisoning them within the lower bound of their their potential. So hopefully whatever this change of consciousness or this spiritual awakening, what it does is it removes those limitations that society is placing upon the vast majority of individuals and allowing the vast majority of people to aim towards that self-actualization as opposed to being content with the base comforts of life. And that's like a beautiful full circle to what we talked about initially. It's kind of just like, well, how do you become a person who's willing to stand up for principle while you aim towards self-actualization instead of security? Totally. Totally. Yeah. And and I think that that, I actually think that that's the natural state for that. That's the natural human condition in my view is that you do aim for those things because I think once you find, once you kind of find it and once you, you uh, like orientate your life towards that path, you realize like how, necessary it is and how like it feels it feels integrated you know it feels integral it feels integrated and um i think that that's the natural state for for a human and i actually think that the last you know i'm not sure how long you could say that it's lasted whether it's you know hundreds or thousands or whatever it is but as we've kind of gone through this this like general like decline to this kind of society we have now which is you know incredibly just safety orientated and you know doesn't seem to kind of like want to explore these bigger um ideas or or care much about, you know, like self-actualization generally, 
Um, I think that that's a deviation from the norm. And I think that you need these corrections in society. And, you know, I've had a couple of conversations in the past, like even on, on this podcast, like about how maybe everything that's happening now is, is a kind of shock to the system to get us back to that, to kind of get us back on that on that path. I had a really good conversation with a, with a guy called Joel Rafidi, which was kind of like one of my earlier episodes. Um, I definitely recommend checking that one out to anyone who's new listening or, or yourself as well, Jordan. Like the way that he talks about this, it seems to make a lot of sense to me. He was basically saying, you know, because we've created this society where you don't have like a, a hero's journey happening on an individual level, you know, everything is just like easy and there's a straight path for everyone and you go to school and you do this and maybe you go to university and you get a job and you know, all that stuff, but there's no hero's journey that's kind of built into modern society or modern culture, which was built into previous cultures and even some tribes and stuff that exist today. And in particular things like the aboriginals and stuff, like they send their, their boys out to become men. It's like, you know, you get, it, you kind of like uh, get externalized from the tribe for like two years or whatever. And then you have, when you come back, it's like, you've learned all of this, this stuff that you need to learn to kind of become a man and to become a leader. And, um, you know, he was saying that like through this, because we don't have that process in, in mainstream kind of Western culture, like we had to have this big shock to the system and COVID is that shock for us. And, you know, not just COVID, but all the restrictions and this kind of like tyranny, it's like now we're all having to go through this collective um, process of, kind of coming to a character or coming, you know, this kind of, um, self-actualization process, which has been caused by, um, actually having to fight for something for once. Um, and I really like that idea. And I, I definitely, uh, I feel like there's some, there's some truth there. Yeah. It's a beautiful idea. Mm. All right, man. Um, this has been awesome. Uh, let's, uh, let's not keep going any longer because we've already gone, um, quite a long time, but it's been super, super interesting. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing all of your, your knowledge and ideas. Um, do you want to just let people know where they can find you and then also just any kind of final part and thoughts that you have? Yeah, sure thing. Uh, so come find me on Twitter. My handle is at JB, uh, underscore Goldstein, you'll see me talking about sports, uh, their value. Um, I do run a coaching and consulting business that utilizes this information to create like actionable and immediate change in individuals' lives. Um, I've worked with athletes. I work with coaches. I work with just off the couch people. Um, I work with a whole bunch of different people. So if you kind of enjoy what you've heard today from my perspective, um, shoot me a DM. Um, I, they're always open. Um, ask a question. Um, but, but one of the values um, that I use, utilize sport to do is to show people how they can use it in their own lives to create that inertia that puts them on their own hero's journey towards their best uh, and brightest potential, whatever, whatever that is. And a final closing, <laughs> final closing thought. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do kind of a bastard thing, and I'm, gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna put a closing thought that is that is a that is a big cliffhanger, uh, and that will hopefully <laughs> okay. elicit more questions than 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 answers. Good, it's a good suck. It's a good Socratic practice. It's a good professor practice. Uh, maybe not not so much for closing off the story, but but certainly for creating intrigue. The final thought. And it has to relate to what you were just talking about. It's like, well, what is what has really been the process that has been leading us towards like a societal decline? And one of the things that I believe is truly definitive of that is the ascension of the mind over the body. And we can think about that as like the ascension of science 
to the top of the totem pole of what constitutes truth and knowledge in, in, in our in our society. Um, when you do that, what you end up doing is you create a you create a schism between the conception of body and mind being unified and you end up more with like, well, the body houses the soul, the body houses the mind. Uh, and it's sort of like this utility vehicle uh, that, that gets us that gets us around. Um, this is sort of like the a couple hundred years of reverberations of like enlightenment thought. Um, in particular, Rene Descartes, who's the one who separated the body, the body and the mind in order to advance the science of medicine uh, in order to cure people of illness and, and sickness, um, which has given us lots of good things. But it's like it has inverted the balance and it has actually tilted us far away from our ability to understand ourselves as as embodied creatures, as people with a, a body and a mind that are connected as one. Like what happens in the mind happens to the body and what happens to the body happens, happens to the mind. And if we can just get back to that understanding of embodiment as sort of like the root nature of our physical and spiritual being, that might go a long way in restoring our aim towards self-actualization as opposed to keeping us on these base levels because science as truth essentially is material like it, it forces us directly into the material world and to only live within the material world um and that blocks us from the spiritual and it blocks us from the higher levels of consciousness that we should be aiming for and achieving so that's my final parting thought embodiment is the way mind body and spirit all together in one beautiful harmony amazing man thanks a lot cheers thank you for the opportunity this was amazing i had an amazing time this was super cool likewise thank you